Remember when the idea of working remotely from home seemed relaxing? A nice cup of coffee, cat on your lap, secretly wearing your favorite fuzzy slippers as you type away very, very productively. But all of that was before your boss installed bossware on your laptop to keep tabs on you. Before your supervisor expected you to check email or Slack at all hours. A camera watched your every move. Or a colleague rolled their eyes at something you said on Zoom. Welcome to the age of techno stress. It makes me extremely distrustful of the company and also just feeling like a child um, getting monitored all the time. This computer says that based off the sales that you had last year, you don't need that many manpower. It's not just some of the normal negative acts that we see in the workplace. It's really this, this workplace bullying on steroids. I just couldn't sleep at all. My heart was racing. I had to silence Twitter, deactivate the app from my phone, but then I would end up checking the web app online because I was just so anxious and worried about what was being said about me. I'm Bridget Schulte. It's techno stress and what it will take to deal with it. Next on Better Life Lab. It's Better Life Lab. I'm Bridget Schulte. The pace of technological change in today's workplace feels to me a bit like 1913. That's when assembly lines started churning out Ford Model Ts. The advent of the assembly line completely transformed the American economy. Managers used time and motion studies to make sure workers didn't waste a single second of time. And that made for a very stressful work environment. Bodies broke down, and workers demanded and won the right to a shorter work week. Today, companies are using a whole new generation of technologies to monitor employees. And researchers are only beginning to study the impact on workers of our current age of techno-stress, much less figure out what to do about it. For many workers, quotas or schedules are now dictated by algorithms, and they are constantly surveilled by video cameras. Maybe it's no surprise that according to a New York Times investigation, annual turnover at Amazon warehouses recently topped 150%. To get a handle on how our current technologies are stressing us out at work, and how this also hurts employers, I'm joined this episode by Ashley Nixon. She's an associate professor in the Graduate School of Management at Willamette University in Oregon. Ashley's published widely on stress in the workplace and what it does to us. So I like looking on that dark side of technology, right? That mm -hmm. side of how is technology allowing work to invade our lives and to kind of wreak some havoc there? So when we think mm. about techno stress, it's this idea that there are things that trigger a response in us and lead to strain. Um, and mm -hmm. that strain can be psychological, physical, emotional, and behavioral. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of ways that stress can impact us negatively. Looking specifically at technology-enabled stress instead of technology-enabled technology work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, is a little bit newer. And it's we're trying to figure out the areas that it separates from regular stress. Or is this just one new way that all mm. the same stressors from work can kind of be ever-present in our lives? 
It's interesting because so much of what we're exploring on this podcast season is a lot of this amazing research looking at really significant impacts of work stress on chronic illness and even death, you know, in a way that really hasn't made it into the mainstream yet. It's still not really part of mainstream consciousness. So that is an interesting question. With this layering of technology, will it create even more stress? Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's not that it necessarily creates more stress. It creates stress that we don't have good coping strategies for. Mm. Like, like, what do you mean? Uh, so when we think back to when you worked in the 80s and 90s, you weren't expected to go home and be available via email. Right. Uh, people couldn't text you or Slack you or have other ways to get in touch with you. So we had this very natural barrier, right? This mm -hmm. physical and temporal barrier that we could leave our work at work and go home and engage in these other roles in our lives that give us meaning and value, right? Mm -hmm. uh, our family, our friends, our activities, now that barrier has essentially and, and much more rapidly under COVID recently, uh, it's been mm -hmm. wiped away, right? There is no barrier between my work environment and my home environment, my work time and my home time. I am forced to engage in work behaviors in my home environment. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of those barriers that we had to help us cope have really been minimized uh, for, for many of us, with the exception of some essential workers who retained those barriers but got a whole right. slew of different stressors to make it terrible for them as well. Well, so on today's episode, I'd like to share with you three stories of workers who are uh, contending with different ways that technology has transformed the American workplace in ways that seem likely to increase in the future. And the first story comes from a millennial woman. Uh, she asked to remain anonymous for fear that her employer might retaliate. She holds a position of considerable res responsibility. And with her laptop and internet connection, she can work from pretty much anywhere. It was a job she loved until one day her company installed something on her computer known as Bossware. Uh, so I work as a creative director for a fully remote company. Um, you know, everyone's remote. Just a few weeks ago, a new application was implemented to not only track our time and what projects we're working on for billable hours, but it also takes screenshots of our desktop um, every 10 minutes throughout the day that we're recording. So, wow. And it, it's, it's especially nerve wracking. I work off of my personal computer. I've never been provided with a work computer. So if I'm checking my bank account and it happens to take a screenshot... Um, that is then stored in the time tracking app and viewed, able to be viewed by my employers. Oh wow! Why why did they why did they bring these monitoring uh, technologies in? Right, their reasoning was that uh, we had a few bad actors um, that had been let go of, and that when they wanted to let people go, it helped to have screenshots of them not working. Mm. Um, which felt very reactive and unfair um, for the rest of us who weren't doing that. Um, it feels like it, like they are already trying to gather evidence ahead of any crime. Um, it also makes it difficult if you are someone who's able to work efficiently and get what get your work done in a few hours rather than a full eight. It could reflect poorly, uh, sort of like an unfinished time card. How's that affected you? 
It makes me extremely anxious. In fact, just last night I had a nightmare that I had forgotten to press play on the time tracking app and got fired as a result of it. Oh my Um, God. So it's become a really traumatic thing. It makes me extremely distrustful of the company and of what, of also just feeling like a child um, getting Mm. monitored all the time. Uh, Additionally, I spend a large part of my day just sort of processing, thinking through things, and then executing takes only a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I'm having to work to try to trick this monitoring app into saying, oh, this took me a full eight hours today rather than a few hours. You know, and it strikes me if you do creative work, that isn't necessarily your fingers moving on the keyboard all the time, right? That's think time. Right. What are we trying to measure here? Is it that the work is getting done or is it that we're sitting at our desks all day? I mean, are other people experiencing this sense of feeling kind of punitive? And Yeah, I, I actually, so I meet with my team once a week and it is definitely their biggest concern. Um, and I can assure them that I'm not looking at their screenshots as their director. I'm not interested in looking at how much time they've logged. But I can't really speak to what the the people above me are doing with that information. Mm-hmm. Um, so it puts us all in a really, a really gross place. I also have had a colleague let me know that she was confronted about a message she had sent on Slack that was that she had a negative attitude towards something. So when you did, have you started getting some of those messages? I that, have. Like, yes. And how does that make you feel? Well, it, it's very invasive. Um, it makes me feel disrespected. I mean, I'm in a director role and I'm having someone message me about a few hours of work that I wasn't sitting at my desk or I wasn't typing actively, or maybe I was checking Twitter, who knows? Um, mm-hmm. It makes me feel very belittled and disrespected in the company. Mm. And is that a place you want to stay? Not if this continues. Um, feeling an inherent distrust from my employers is just not conducive to a healthy work culture, especially where almost all millennials, you know, we expect, you know, with startups, to maybe have a little lower pay, but with the expectation of having, you know, a good work environment, a good work culture mm-hmm. that respects work-life balance and trusts mm-hmm. its employees to do their work well on their own time. And it just feels that it kind of goes against that social contract. So Ashley, bossware, tattleware, this kind of technology has just exploded during the pandemic. What can we expect in the future and how that how is this going to affect work stress or uh, workplaces? Uh, and, and is this the right thing to be doing? No. And we know this. Uh, we have a ton of empirical evidence that shows that surveillance of employees leads to bad healthcare outcomes. It leads to emotional disengagement from work. It leads to creative and, and knowledge workers being occupied with the monitoring of them, which leaves them with far less mental capacity to actually do the work. So this is basically our employers kneecapping us and then expecting us to still perform well somehow. Um, and what I consider this to be is really lazy managers. And I will tell my students, if they do this to their employees, they are an epic failure as a manager in my book. Um, Mm. One of the things that has become grossly apparent to HR professionals is 80% of managers do not add value to their organizations. 
80, wait, 80% of managers do not add value? I mean, I've seen the reports about how if you have a toxic boss, you're more likely to quit. Uh, 70% of, of meetings actually get in the way of work, and it's managers who call the meetings. But I hate 80%? And I would guess that that has gone up since COVID uh, for one simple reason. It is a lot harder to measure the quality of knowledge output than it is to measure the quantity of inputs. Yeah. Right. right. I can easily see what time you come to work. I can easily see what time you leave work. But it's much Mm -hmm. harder for me to make a subjective judgment about the quality of the output that you generated while at work. Right. Yeah. If if someone can't do that, they should not be a manager. Period. (laughs) And yet, I guess my question is, how many really do that? Not you know, we've many, seen all of that. Right? We talk about there's all sorts of research that shows that managers tend to reward people who come in early and who stay late, regardless of what we do. I've certainly seen that in my in my career, you know, people sitting around late at night and the manager thinks that they're all working and you look and they're all playing solitaire. But they know it's sort of performance of work. They know that the boss is going to think that they're a good employee. Exactly. It drives me crazy. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what we see is that extension of this, right? This bossware is trying to add this element in, right? Management is an emotional work. Uh, mm. The idea is to give people a vision, to help them create a goal and invest them in that vision mm. such that they want to put forth their efforts towards it. But what we get instead is I need to keep my emotional distance from you so that when and if I have to discipline you, uh, mm. I, I have the emotional distance to do that. And all right. we're really doing is creating a self-fulfilling prophecy because the likelihood of my having to discipline you increases if I emotionally disengage from you. I don't help you create a goal. I make you feel like I don't trust you. And so we're creating the exact situation that we say we're trying to avoid. And then we use these ridiculous excuses of, well, I didn't trust this person I let go, so now I can't trust you. Ashley Nixon, Technology and the Great Resignation, after this. I'm Bridget Schulte. You're listening to Better Life Lab. This episode, I'm talking about techno-stress with Ashley Nixon. She teaches at Willamette University in the Atkinson Graduate School of Management. This is clearly a problem that existed prior to technology, and technology is just sort of amping it up. Yes. I guess that's one of the things I wonder, is technology just taking, you know, for good or for ill, just taking some of the already existing issues in the workplace and just turning it up to 11. Yeah, and, and I think that this is one of the large factors that we're seeing coming out of the Great Resignation. People mm. are leaving their institutions because they don't like this bossware. And people are leaving their institutions because they're saying, we want to call you back in situations that you may not be comfortable with, or we want to penalize you because we need to go back to the old methods of managing you. Hmm. We were in a pandemic for two years. Organizations functioned. Yeah, yeah. To come back now and say what you did for the past two years was insufficient 
or it was fine, but we don't trust you to keep doing it in the future is really, mm-hmm. is really weird. And it speaks to this violation of trust and frankly, a social contract. Uh, mm. What we know is trust and justice within organizations is a huge predictor of basically all the good stuff we want, right? Satisfaction, mm. commitment, motivation, but also it predicts all the things that we don't want going away. People stay in organizations that trust them, that they feel they are treated fairly in, but they mm-hmm. leave organizations that they don't. Uh, so it's easier as a manager to not have to tell you that you're good or bad at your job or judge the quality of your work. It's easier to just say, well, I spied on your computer for three days and I found you working most of the time, but not all of the time. So you're in trouble hmm. now, right? Yeah. One of these things is definitely easier, but we we wouldn't treat people we care about like this and expect them to want to keep functioning or even have a relationship with us. And it turns out, employment is fundamentally a relationship between the organization and a human. Well, let's move on to another story about a relationship uh, you know, that is really between a, a worker and an algorithm. Um, so for an episode of Better Life Lab that we produced prior to the pandemic, I spoke with the veteran employee of a big box retailer in L.A. named Adrian Ugalde, and he described to me how algorithms had come to play havoc with his weekly work schedule. It's very unpredictable. It can be anywhere from two working days to five you can be scheduled five one week, the next week two, the next week three. Mm. Before you had a human who would actually write out the schedule. Mm-hmm. Now it's a computer who spits out like this is the hours that this system thinks that you should have and you shouldn't go over it. So the computer thinks that there are some days that you should only work one day and other weeks you should work five days. It's all some algorithm that's deciding your yes, life? Yes, ma'am. That's exactly what they base their schedule on. So this is this is artificial intelligence. And what kind of life were you able to lead based on what this artificial intelligence suggests is the best a, for the store? A very stressful one. And, and you have the human part. They're in the store. They see the need to have more workers there. Mm-hmm. But there's still nothing they can do, or at least they tell you that because they're saying that this computer says that based off the sales that you had last year, you don't need that many manpower. They have a quota, and our main managers, if they surpass a certain amount of hours, they themselves don't get their bonus checks. Mm-hmm. Last week, I heard the human rep, because we have walkie-talkies at our job, mm-hmm. and she contacted my boss. And she's telling him, hey, we went over 60 hours for the week. We have to cut 60 hours. So they proceeded to tell people to go home, and then they called team members and told them, don't come to work. Hmm. So all that work, they pushed on to the few, very few people that were left. Wow, so, so there's fewer they, of you like, doing... They based everything because the system told them, hey, you went over on hours, you got to cut hours. Wow. So they're more enticed to tell people to go home because then they get their bonus checks. So, Ashley, there's a lot of research about surveillance, you know, warehouse workers under surveillance, cameras everywhere, truck drivers, you know, and for uh, hourly workers, there are these algorithmic scheduling. So you can't really argue with anyone. It's like the demand is down. You have to go home. So the research on surveillance has been done like we can monitor your laptop, but we can also just monitor you and video Mm. record you and record your voice and all of those types of things. Uh, We know that this is associated with a lot more stress and strain 
for employees, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's tension, uh, digestive problems, fatigue, mental health, they have a lot more anxiety because they know they're being Mm. monitored. Even more, like we think about um, the big brother state, right? Like that's what these folks are already living in. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't know what data is being collected on them. Uh, They don't know what's happening with that data. And there's also something that we call counterproductive work behaviors. Hmm. Interestingly, when we work in organizations that behave unethically, uh, Hmm. people are more likely to also feel like they can behave unethically. So these Mm -hmm. organizations end up signaling to their employees, we don't trust you. We think you're going to behave badly. Oftentimes people say that or look at that and think, gosh, you must behave badly if you expect me to behave badly. Therefore, if I'm going to stay here, I'm going to try to figure out how I can exploit your system. Where is the point in here where you can't record me? We've seen people come up with things where it jiggles their mouths so their boss thinks yeah, they're working. I've, I've seen that. It's like you can actually buy that on Amazon. Yes. You know, sort of ways to game the system already. Yep. And even um, more sophisticated methods where people program spreadsheets to constantly be doing operations. So it's even a more sophisticated version of a jiggling mouse, right? It's not uh. just keeping your computer awake. It's keeping your computer operating at such a high level that your organization thinks that you must be imputing a lot of data. You know, but for retail workers, they can't really game the system like that. They have what one researcher calls sort of the stress of disorganized time. Their schedule and their, you know, is volatile, which means then their income is volatile. Well, I want to separate the surveillance from the automated scheduling, because I mm-hmm. see those as very different stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, one might lead to more counterproductive behavior in that I may come to work and say, if you don't trust me, I don't trust you. And therefore, I should be doing whatever I can to extract additional value from this institution, mm-hmm. um, whether it is doing my job slower Uh, than I need to do, right? So kind of pulling back some of my time inputs or whether it's legitimately trying to figure out how I could potentially steal something from the place and you wouldn't be able to see me on all your cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen all of this in employees. On the other side, you've got this scheduling issue. And this one is, is very different, right? Because it's not just that constant surveillance at work. It's the upheaval in everything in your life, your income, your work time, your daily schedule. My friends and family are struggling with childcare and they have totally consistent work weeks. I can't Mm, imagine how much harder it is for a family with children who has this type of inconsistency in their scheduling. It actually ends up, the research shows that you end up holding the rest of the family hostage. You know, that somebody else can't work because then they have to always be available for childcare. So it has these really devastating ripple effects that can really keep a family and an extended family in poverty. Yeah, absolutely. This impacts every aspect of your life rather than just feeling a lot of tension while you're at work. Mm -hmm. Um, You're never really able to get away from that fear of, well, what if they only give me a day next week? Mm -hmm. Um, What if they pull my hours because 
they were told they went over last week and I don't actually get a reasonable paycheck this month. Right. Uh, this leads to that type of um, pervasive anxiety that touches every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm wondering, though, is, you know, what happens when your boss is an algorithm? Warehouse workers, they'll have an algorithm for, we think you should pick this much. The quotas keep going up and up and up without really un- understanding why, uh, you know, that you just kind of push you to the edge of, of your human productivity. You know, when your your boss isn't even human, what does that do for, for the sense of control or job strain? It completely eradicates it, right? You have no job control and you've got out of control job strain. One of the things that I thought was quite mind-blowing, and I'll, I'll use this as an example when I teach because it's this idea that humans should work like computers. Mm. Um, and in management, we'll refer to that as theory X of management. Um, mm. Ford assembly workers, they actually had turnover of 300% annually. Hmm. So what happens in situations like that? People leave. Even if they have to come back later, they would rather leave for a while. And in some ways, they likely have to leave in order to recover from the stress of those environments. Sort of maintain your sense of human dignity or your sense that, you know, you matter. Yes. And just rest. Let your body rest, right? Because when you're Mm -hmm. under stress, you have that flight-fight response Uh, Mm -hmm. And your body just can't keep that up all the time without it wearing down everything. Mentally, physically, it wears us down. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people have to leave merely to recover. Yeah. And what we saw was, so if we have that as our exemplar of, of theory X, what we saw was a movement to theory Y of management, where we look at people not as inherently lazy, inherently stupid, inherently going to exploit us, um, but rather as people who actually care about our organizations. Which the research shows is true. Which the the research shows is true. You know, employees don't want to work or they're lazy. I mean, there's so much research that counters those kind of bizarre and yet pretty powerful stereotypes. Yes. Everything that people naturally bring to management roles is typically counterintuitive to what actually works. Uh, (laughs) And it's really about being able to form relationships with people, support them, and get them invested in what you're doing. People work really, we can work really hard and really enthusiastic. This is something that I think has been captured in the idea of flow, Uh, Mm -hmm. We are working so hard. We are generating so much. We can do it for hours at a time and maintain focus. Um, Our bodies are technically stimulated, right? And so Mm -hmm. that could easily become distress, but it isn't. It's something that's empowering. Mm -hmm. Um, And people function highly there. But what we end up doing is creating this emotional boundary and distance with our employee. Mm -hmm. Um, with, With this scheduling stuff, we're starting to see some legislative pushback because right. it's entered that area where we as a society are acknowledging this isn't humane. I think mm-hmm. that's probably why things like Uber and Lyft grew so quickly is, gosh, if I'm only going to be able to get paid for two hours a week, I either need to supplement my income or why on earth wouldn't I decide to control my schedule? 
Um, That's a there's only so much control you have there as well. And then Mm -hmm. if you want to make money, then the algorithm sort of kicks in there as well. And you end up working more and more for less and less. So that has issues as well. The value proposition of those is not necessarily the same as the reality. And some of these psychological tools that they have leveraged are um, uh, fascinating, but terrifying. What do you mean psychological tools? Uh, they have found little prompts they can give to people to get them to work more and to stay on the job longer. Uh, and what people don't realize is that they're being psychologically manipulated. Another form of techno stress. Yes. But it's, it's, I think, a little insidious because they feel like they're in total control. Hmm. Um, right. So they're much more likely, and I think all people have some tendency to this, but I think they're much more likely to say, gosh, this is my fault. Mm. I -hmm. worked too much. I had total control. I don't even have a boss. So it must be my fault. Well, let's move on to the last story. Our final techno-stress story comes from a young social psychologist named Roxanne Felig. She's completing her doctoral work at the University of South Florida, but a paper she co-authored set off a firestorm on social media, and it's one that she worries may harm her chances to land an academic job in the future. We were interested in testing one of the theorized consequences of self-objectification, of being so preoccupied with your physical appearance, to the extent that women lose access to their physical experiences. So, for example, women who are high in self-objectification often ignore hunger cues. Mm. So we wanted to test how this plays out in a real-world setting. And there's this well-observed phenomenon of women being out and about on a cold night, you know, at a club or a bar and being dressed very inappropriately for the weather, you know, wearing a mini skirt (laughs) in freezing temperatures, but seeming to be unbothered by the cold weather. You know, they don't bring a coat with them. Going out in literally sub-freezing temperatures, wearing the tiniest outfits. Mm -hmm. We thought that it might be that for some of these women who are dressed like this, they may actually be ignoring physiological cues and may actually not feel cold. Wow. So that's exactly what we found. We found that for women who were high in self-objectification, there was really no relationship between skin exposure and how cold they reported feeling. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, you know, why why is finding a finding like that? Why is that important? And why did you feel like that was really important to share? We were surveying women who were out with friends waiting to go into bars and nightclubs where there's an increased chance of a woman being assaulted or slipped a date rape drug. And so if you're in this state of self-objectification and you, you know, are less aware of how you're feeling, it could be potentially very harmful to women. Wow. That's, that is really terrifying. It is. (laughs) So, all right. So your, your hypothesis turns out to, it, it sounds like it turns out to be true. So then what do you do? We submitted it to the British Journal of Social Psychology So I believe in all, we were under peer review for about a year. We went through three rounds of revisions. And then um, a reporter from the Daily Mail published a piece on it. I didn't love the way that it was reported. They got, you know, the sample size wrong. So Mm -hmm. I was just like, if anyone sees this, they're going to think this is bad science. So I Mm. decided to make a TikTok video on my personal TikTok account, walking through the study and, you know, sharing the results. So it instantly started to get a lot of attention. 
I think over the course of maybe two or three weeks, it had half a million views. Wow. The the comments were overwhelmingly from women who were expressing that, you know, they had seen this play out in their own experiences and they Mm. were, it was validating to them to see that this had this psychological mechanism behind it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was super cool. So it got Mm -hmm. a ton of pop press attention, which was a little bit overwhelming. Again, generally (laughs) doesn't happen to like scientists, like you said, <laughs> max seven people will read your study. Meanwhile, this wasn't even just that our study had gained attention, but every article had, you know, a, a screenshot of the TikTok with my face in it. So, oh, wow. so there I am. And I'm just like, wow, you are out there. I was out yeah. there. Yeah. And then what happens? So um, I received an email from my advisors and the subject line was something like, I think you should see this. And it was a link to a Twitter thread that had been started by another researcher in the field who felt that our study didn't meet his definition of scientific rigor. And he tweeted this out to the world and it was something like, it's 2021 and social psychologists are still doing research like this and trying to pass it off as meaningful research or, or something kind of condescending like that. And, mm-hmm. and so by the time this thread was sent to me, it had, I would say maybe a hundred comments, several mm. retweets, wow. comments like how do women expect to be taken seriously when they do work like this? And mm comments that were just completely um, devaluing the need to study issues that primarily affect women and to study self-objectification specifically. And so I decided to reply to the thread um, in kind of a snarky way, saying something like, you know, thank you so much for your thoughtful contribution to our research. I'll make sure to consider what you find important and valuable for our next study. (laughs) I think it was that that set off the accompanying Twitter nightmare that ensued, which was a days long event of people who I've never met, who had never even opened the document or read the paper coming at me, calling me, you know, a questionable scientist saying that I was engaging in unethical research practices. So your research, your name, your reputation, potentially your future ability to get a job or be hired, your, you know, your reputation's all on the line. It's it, what's happening to you? How are you how, how are you experiencing that? Yeah, so it was um, rather terrifying at points. But it really turned into people, you know, personally attacking me, despite the fact that there were five other researchers on this paper, Um, Mm. people sending me page long messages into my inbox explaining exactly what was wrong with me, what was wrong with the study, why it was a problem Mm. from, you know, newly made accounts with no username so that I couldn't tell who it was. People specifically coming to my profile and saying that I, you know, engaged in unethical research practices, that People like me are the reason why social psychology is failing as a science. So it was very overwhelming considering, you know, I'm a grad student still. I haven't even really begun my career. I I was obsessively and compulsively checking my phone. I had to to silence Twitter, um, deactivate the app from my phone, but then I would end up checking on like the web app online because I was just so 
I was so anxious and worried about what was being said about me. The first and second night, I think that this was happening, I just couldn't sleep at all. My heart was Mm -hmm. racing. You know, I wear like a fitness watch that tells me what my heart rate is and what my stress level is. And it was constantly like, you're experiencing high stress. You need to relax. Take some deep (laughs) breaths. Do you want to start a guided meditation? Um, The fact that I had posted on TikTok, some people said that, you know, I was openly inviting this intense criticism of of the Mm. paper, which... I understand, right? If you're going to share your stuff publicly, it's just natural that people are going to be interested in it and can do whatever they please with that information. But it was almost kind of, at least to me, came across as a little bit condescending, like, oh, you silly millennial with your TikTok, like, Mm. that's not how you do serious science. And so now we're going to make it very clear to you that you shouldn't do that in the future because this is what will happen if you do. So, Ashley, that sounds like a horrific experience. You know, you think of, like, writing academic papers as as being a fairly low-stress occupation. Can you talk a little bit about how technology has played a role in this situation that could have long-lasting effects for Roxanne? Absolutely. In academia, we can be quite mean to each other. Uh, mm. I've gone to presentations, particularly when you get into methods and data analytic techniques, uh, people mm. can really go for the jugular. But you typically know when that's going to happen. I am giving this presentation at this mm. conference. These individuals might show up and it might get heated. So you um, can prepare for it, right? Exactly. You, you can sort of like, all right, it's coming. I'm going to... I gird myself. I'm going to have some good answers. Or yes, yes. So in that regard, it's it's adversarial sometimes, but like being a lawyer, um, I know when I'm going to argue, and I know when I'm not going to have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, this to me is this bizarre expansion of workplace bullying. But here we're seeing like this is coming from everybody. Uh, right. There are likely people who aren't even particularly associated with social psychology who were attacking Roxanne and potentially repeatedly t- attacking her over time. Um, mm-hmm. So technology here is creating the ability to compound this stressor that could occur at work into this magnified, huge thing um, where it's not just some of the normal negative acts that we see in the workplace, like my idea was disrespected or I wasn't mm. invited to lunch with the team. I you was know, talked over in a meeting or yes, ignored. Or, it's, yeah. mm-hmm. it's people hate me. People are sending me like death threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are trying to threaten my entire future to even begin a career, let alone progress within it. Right. Um, so it's it's really this this workplace bullying on steroids um, in a way that I I certainly hope becomes atypical, um, but it's really frightening if that becomes more normal. You know, so when we when we think about technology, I mean, there's no going back. It's going to continue to play a role in our workplaces and how we work, no matter where we are. And here, on the one hand, with Roxanne. How cool. You have a great idea. You've done a really cool piece of science. In the past, it would stay in a pretty rarefied 
atmosphere, you know, like seven people would read the paper. And here you can use these tools, Twitter or social media or TikTok, to get a message out. So there's a positive aspect to it. What do we need to do (laughs) as we move into a future of work to ensure that technology works for good rather than this really terrible, bad stress. Yeah. We need to be a lot more thoughtful about it. We know that there are certain things that are negative that technology brings to us, right? Um, There's this interesting thing. So I I particularly study interpersonal conflict um, Mm -hmm. and mistreatment at work. And you know, the most common way we communicate at work is through asynchronic text, right? So whether Mm -hmm. it's me getting a text, me getting an instant message, or me getting an email, uh, Mm -hmm. we lose all of the nonverbal communication aspects of that Mm -hmm. communication. Uh, So there's something about us as people, we have a negativity bias. So I'm much more likely to look at neutral text and presume there was something negative intended by it. But we wow, also know, really so yes. neutral text. I can, I can, I can take badly. <laughs> yeah, I, I once uh, said to a colleague who was working really hard, like, "Hey, you know, I'm worried about your well-being. Be sure you take some time off." And he called me, and he's like, "You're worried about my well-being? Do you have a reason? Mm-hmm. Like, like I was somehow like a mafioso. Like, I'm really worried about your well-being, there, guy. Oh wow, um, wow. But and and so what I thought was a friendly reach out to be like, take care of yourself, man. Like, it's a real hard time right now." He took yeah. as a threat. Um, wow. Like, do you know something I didn't? Uh, mm. And so we do have that negativity bias. That's way more likely to occur if we're anxious or depressed, right? Mm. Because our own yeah. negative emotions are occurring more frequently. Mm-hmm. On the other side of that, technology allows uh, disinhibition. We know people online will say things that are much worse and more cruel than they would typically say to someone they knew, cared about, or at least had to look in the eye to say it. Right. Just read any of the comments section under any article I've ever written. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We presume people wouldn't say that to us at the grocery store, but man, behind an an alias online, they certainly will. Uh, So these two things are, are getting worse. And we have not done a good job at the societal level, the organizational level, and to a great extent, the individual level. Mm. thinking about how we want to control these things and what we want our culture to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly the organization has got to take control of this. This Mm -hmm. is the job of organizational leadership to set an appropriate culture for their organizations. Things fall into place if leadership minds the culture. But Mm. a lot of the stories we've heard today are about organizations that make decisions based off of financial implications Mm -hmm. rather than thinking through the human side of the organization. It's really easy to say if we cut hours, we have a bigger profit margin. It's really hard to think through the long-term implications of what are the costs associated with treating my employees poorly? Because turnover is expensive. Right, and then there's a lot of good data that shows if you treat your people well, you are actually going to make more money. That's actually going to be better for you and for your business and your bottom line. But it's real hard when you're seeing how much you could make if you cut hours. 
versus how much you'll make if you don't and not want to cut hours. So it yeah, takes... The, it's like this whole thing where it's easy to see that on the bottom line. And what you can't see are like lost future sales or lost customers because yep. you can't find anybody on the floor to help you. Uh, you, you don't even know those those losses. So you yeah. can't account for them or turnover. People seem to discount that. And yet that's an incredibly expensive uh, line item in any business. Yes. I have been known to walk out of stores if I can't get help promptly or if I have to wait in line to pay for something. I'm suddenly like, how much do I really want this? Um, So I'm the perfect example of people losing sales over not having enough folks around. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure there's a lot of folks who are impatient, as impatient as I am. Um, But even then you think about hiring someone, how many people have to interview them? How much time have you now paid for interviews? If you're doing that two or three times more than your competitor, how much of your resources have you lost to just filling positions that were already adequately filled? You know, so is this all an organizational problem to fix? Is there a role for public policy? Is there a role for, you know, workers and advocates? How do we design a better future of work and well-being where we know technology is going to be part of it? Yes. If we wait for organizations to fix this for us, it will never happen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, no. Even on the um, automated scheduling, we're now seeing a lot of major cities and Oregon um, actually has predictive scheduling laws. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're already seeing steps being made to try to protect employees from some of these more egregious organizational practices. Mm. That said, if you're in Arkansas, Georgia, Iowa, or Tennessee, they've said no one's allowed to prohibit these things. Wow. Um, and so we're. this is going to be, I think, a big push and pull moving forward. Um, online nastiness is something that we have been struggling with globally for, what, 20 years now. Um, and there will always be some challenges trying to balance freedom of speech, people's right to get to do things anonymously versus how we as a society handle their potentially naughty behavior. Mm. Um, I don't expect some utopia, but mm. I do expect Within organizations, we have that lever to say, you can do what you want in your free time, but within our organization, our expectations for how you treat each other and people are this. And if you Mm -hmm. can't live up to this, then you can't be part of this group. Ashley Nixon. She's a professor in the Graduate School of Management at Willamette University. Earlier this episode, we heard the voices of big box retail worker Adrian Ugalde and of Roxanne Felix, a PhD student in social psychology. It was Roxanne who experienced a Twitter nightmare after she took the results of her peer-reviewed publication to TikTok. And as for the first worker we heard in this episode, the 20-something woman stressed out by bossware, I have an update. She initially agreed to record our conversation on the condition of anonymity. She feared she'd lose her job if we identified her. As we were finishing up production of this episode, however, I heard back. She'd decided to quit her job with the e-commerce company where she was a creative director, so we now can identify her publicly. Her name is Maddie Swenson. Maddie said that the anxiety from being constantly monitored gave her heart palpitations. She needed to get out of the job. 
She's now freelancing, and she said, trying to get my mental and physical health back. She told me she was more than willing to take a pay cut in exchange for being able to sleep again at night. This season on Better Life Lab, we're looking at work stress and the future of work and well-being in America. Next time, we'll look in-depth at a promising new approach that's a favorite solution of one-time presidential candidate Andrew Yang and also former President Richard M. Nixon. It's called Guaranteed Basic Income. We found that, number one, people didn't stop working. In fact, they were more likely to move from part-time jobs to full-time jobs. We've got work to do. I hope you'll join us next time on Better Life Lab. For more resources on fairer, healthier work, go to newamerica.org. Click the link for Better Life Lab. On behalf of myself and my producer, David Shulman, many thanks for joining us for our new season. Please review us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Better Life Lab is produced by New America in partnership with Slate. Special thanks to Alicia Montgomery at Slate for all her work with us. Our podcast is sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is committed to improving health and health equity in the United States. In partnership with others, RWJF is working to develop a culture of health rooted in equity that provides every individual with a fair and just opportunity to thrive, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. For more information, visit www.rwjf.org. For Better Life Lab, I'm Bridget Schulte.